Good morning. Uh, before we get into the, the sermon this morning, I, I want to spend some time praying and just thanking the Lord for this opportunity for us to be together. So if you would, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together. Lord, prepare our hearts to receive your word. It's in Christ's name. Amen. So if you haven't been with us, uh, we are in a series in John chapter 15, which is part of a bigger conversation Jesus is having with his people, uh, his disciples. Uh, he is basically letting them know, I'm on my way to my crucifixion, my death, and my resurrection. And throughout this conversation, throughout this time of being with his disciples, he's repeatedly telling them, I'm leaving you. I will be departing, but I will not leave you alone. But as we get deeper into the conversation, we see there must be deep sorrow for the disciples because their, their best friend, their closest companion of multiple years is leaving them. Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the one that they thought would be the king on the throne has said, no, I'm leaving. I'm going away. Uh, for some of them, it was probably confusion as if like everything we've been taught is not coming to pass. What's the deal? Uh, for, for others of them, there was this misunderstanding, this false assurance. Peter uh, says, Jesus, wherever you go, I'll go with you. And, and Jesus says to, to Peter, no, you won't. You'll betray me. When the rooster crows, you'll remember that I told you this because you're not ready. You can't go where I'm going. Uh, and as we listen to this conversation, maybe you can resonate. Wh where would their joy go? Where would their happiness and their zeal for life go if Jesus is gone from them? And, and one of the things we think about as we look at this text, we've, we've seen troubling times are upon us. And in troubling times, we can feel as though we'll never have joy again, right? And so what Jesus is going to remind his disciples is he's going to give them untakeable joy as we live out the Great Commission. Jesus is going to give us a joy that cannot be taken from us as we live out the Great Commission. And so the first section of our text, verses 16 to 19, we see Jesus' death and resurrection have been made plain to us. He says, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while. We don't know what he's talking about. And then Jesus says, he, he, it says he knew, uh, he knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by a little while, and you will not see me, and again in a little while, and you will see me. So what Jesus is doing here, this statement, a little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me, he's letting them know of his impending crucifixion. He's letting them know that he is going to die. He is not going to be on earth forever. He's not going to set up this grand earthly kingdom and rule over the world the way some of the Pharisees and the Jews of the day thought. And what he's telling us and what he's telling his disciples is that he's got to die. His work, his mission was crucifixion, a, a central aspect of our faith, a central aspect of Jesus' life and work is that he had to come and die on a cross. 
Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2 says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. It's why we sing this morning of the blood of Jesus washing over us. It's the reason we will take Lord's Supper this morning to celebrate the death of Christ, to celebrate him laying his life down for his people. Remember John 15, no, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You see, Jesus is letting his disciples know, I'm on my way out. In church, I want to remind you this morning, the crucifixion is not just something for Good Friday. It's not just something that we use in evangelism when we're talking to the lost. It's something for the Christian each and every day. Paul said, I knew nothing among you Corinthians except Christ and him crucified. We come back to the cross this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper because it is so central to everything about us. It's the power that saved us. It's the power that allows us to fight sin. It's the power that keeps us going every day, the death and the blood of Jesus and him giving his life for us to fulfill the call of God. And it says, you know, in this text, we're reminded that, that Jesus is going to go for a little while, but then he's going to come back. And, and there are two views here. One view says that this is actually Jesus saying, I'm going to go to the Father, so I'm going to die, rise again, and ascend. And in a little while, at the end of time, I will come back and get you. That, that's one view. The, the other view is that Jesus is speaking of his death, and then in a little while, he will rise again, and they will see him again. Now, I personally think that the second view is most fitting for the context, but the first view is, is still true. There is a sense in which Jesus is coming back in a little while, right? He's not leaving his people behind, but I think here he's letting his disciples know, I'm going to be gone. Y'all are going to be scattered. There's going to be a lot of stuff happening here, but I'm not gone for good. And what we see when he's, what he's doing here, what Jesus is saying, how he's laying this out is he's showing us fatherly love. He's showing fatherly care and love for his disciples. Uh, because he, he heard their questioning. He heard their confusion. And previously he's, he's asked them, you know, have you not read to the Pharisees? Or, you know, you foolish disciples, do you not know? But in this moment, at this right time, he says, I, I've let you know so that you won't fall away. We've seen that in John 15 and 16. Uh, Jesus says to them in his fatherly way, I won't leave you as orphans. And uh, I don't know about any of you. I grew up uh, in a kind of a blue-collar family, working-class family. My parents got up every morning, went to the factory, came home, had dinner, went to bed, repeat. But some of you grew up with parents who traveled for a living. And maybe you remember hugging your dad's leg as he walked out the door and he has to stoop down, kiss you on the head and say, I'll be back. I promise I'm coming back. You know, and maybe some of you had a father who left and didn't come back. But what Jesus is saying is I am like a good father. I leave, but I will be back. I will not leave you as orphans. And in fact, when I go, I will come back and you will be joyful. That's what he's showing us this morning. And, and Jesus is so gracious that he prepared them beforehand. We talked about that last week. He didn't leave them out to dry as though Christianity is going to be this fun, easy thing, and then boom, they get hit with the crucifixion. No, he's, he's gradually letting them know, I am going to die. I am going to depart to my father. You've got to be ready for this. And then, as a, any good father would do, he sends a helper. 
the spirit of truth, the spirit that we talked about last week. I mean, just listen to the love of Jesus. He doesn't leave them to fend for themselves. He sends them help. And then he promises. He gives them his firm word, you will see me again. Again, in a little while, you'll see me. And so as we look at this little section, this little interaction, this little conversation and back and forth, I want to ask you, do you know the fatherly love of Jesus for yourself? This morning, I'm, I'm sitting on the back porch just thinking through, what is my view of God? And growing up, I was given this view of God that you, you're going to be in sin and you're going to live in the dark, but then God's going to flip the light switch and expose you. And all of my life, I had this view of God that he's just out to trip me up. He's out to catch me doing something wrong. But that's not what we see here. We see a fatherly, loving Savior saying, look, I'm not out to trap you. I'm not out to leave a bunch of surprises for you. The world will be shocked, but I'm letting you know beforehand so that you don't stumble, so that you don't trip, so that you don't fall. And in fact, I've put my spirit in you, the spirit of Christ, in order that you can remember what I've told you when the time comes. Do you know this, this love of Jesus. Some of you have believed in Jesus. You've believed and trusted in this love, and you are walking in that love. Praise God for that. Some of you, like me, have believed in Jesus. You've trusted in his love, but you need a fresh reminder that he is loving you like a father loves his children. And then there are some of you in the room who have not believed in the fatherly love of Jesus. It repels you to hear about Jesus. It, it turns you away. It's, it's, it doesn't fit with your worldview. And, and what Jesus would call you to do, what I'm urging you to do, is to believe in him. Receive his love. For some of you, this may be the first time you've ever heard of Jesus' love. Believe in this love. Trust in Jesus. We are sinful. The world, the, the spirit comes to convict us of our sin, but Jesus comes in to pick us up and to grab us and hold us close like a shepherd picks up an injured lamb to rescue us. He says, I've got lambs from outside of this flock. He's bringing lambs to his flock. Will you come and receive the fatherly, welcoming love of Jesus? And, and he tells his disciples, as a loving Savior, you will be sorry first, but you will have untakeable joy. And that's what we're going to see in the next few verses, verses 20 through 22. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you hear that phrase, that means with certainty, without a doubt, no question, what I'm about to say is going to come to pass. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice now, when you read that sentence or when, when you hear that phrase, what, what, I, what comes to my mind is that, that old school scale where you put something heavy in one side and the other side goes up. And then if you balance it out, you, you got to remove something from one side, put it in the other. Well, what Jesus is saying is the scales are going to be off balance. When I die, you're going to be heavy with sorrow and lamenting and weeping and grief. And the world's going to be, their spirits are going to be lifted. They're going to celebrate. They're going to rejoice. They're going to be excited because I'm gone. They're going to think the ruler of this world has won and that we have lost. But the scales aren't going to balance out. They're actually going to tip in the other direction. Look what he says. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. There are two different responses 
the response of sorrow and deep sadness and lamenting and weeping and grief. And the response of this wrong, false rejoicing. We see it all the time when, when it looks like the church loses, when the, when the Christians lose, there's rejoicing from the world. And yet when God shows up in ways that the world didn't expect, all of a sudden we rejoice despite the sorrow. And, and what's ironic about this whole conversation is the means of their sorrow would turn into the means of their rejoicing. We rejoice because Christ was crucified. Why? Because of what it accomplished. It was sorrowful for a moment for the disciples to see Jesus in the tomb. But once Jesus rose again, all of a sudden that death leads to victory. That death leads to life. That death leads to the phrase, it is finished. And then Jesus goes and sits at the right hand of God. So while one response is fitting, the other is foolish, there will be a dramatic turn of events. And then Jesus says, here's what it's going to be like. It's going to be like a woman giving birth to a child. And I've had four children. My wife's had four children. But uh, she goes through this, this process of being pregnant all these months. And then all of a sudden, the, the contractions start. And she's getting ready. She's gearing up. The water breaks. Whatever happens. And then all of a sudden, there's anguish. Like, this is going to hurt. This is going to be awful. And it could be t two days awful and walking around in hospitals, or it could be 10 minutes awful. We've seen all kinds of chaos. But the moment the baby comes out of the womb, all of the sorrow was worth it. And all of the sorrow is forgotten because that little baby is right there. And sometimes in life, we have to go through anguish. We have to go through sorrow in order to get the joy. In order to get a baby, the woman has to go through intense pain. But once that baby is here, there is joy that a new human being has been brought into the world. And the death of Jesus was sorrowful for the disciples. It was one of the most grievous times for them. And yet it was one of the most joyful things that could have ever happened for them and for us. You have sorrow now, he says. You will suffer. You will grieve. You will go through this pain. But you will have joy again because you will see me. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now. Even the very moment that Jesus has to speak these words, he says you have sorrow now. But I will see you again. But I will see you again. Those had to be some of the most glorious words. And when the risen Christ showed up that Sunday morning, I bet you they remembered, you will see me again. It's that same celebration when we rejoice on Easter because Jesus has risen. You will see me again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Your best friend's gone. But three days later, he rises from the grave. How can anyone steal your joy? How can persecution, how can trials, how can the threat of death, how can angels or demons or all things in heaven and earth take that joy from you? It cannot. When we have found Jesus, when we realize that Christ has died for us and has risen from the grave, just like those disciples, we have a joy that is untakeable. We have a joy that will not be taken. No one will take that joy from you. Not Satan, not yourself, 
not your greatest enemy. Because eternal joy comes through knowing Christ. So for the original disciples, we see in Acts 5.41, in the face of suffering, they rejoice that they were worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. We see the cowardly Peter who denies Christ three times. In 1 Peter 4, say, rejoice that you share in Christ's suffering. If the culture war makes us suffer, we can rejoice that we know Jesus Christ. But for us, uh, for some of you in this room, it's going to be rejoicing when you have hit rock bottom and all you have is Jesus, but for the first time you experience that fatherly love that he shared with his disciples, that he shares with his people. For the first time you're laid on your back and the gentle and lowly Savior doesn't give you a burden, but instead grabs you and picks you up and gives you life. For us as believers, it's finding joy when God is pruning things out of our lives, when he's pruning bad habits away, when he's pruning uh, self-reliant, independent Christianity. And he reminds us, you're not like the world. You need me every moment, that abiding love of Christ. For believers, it's chasing full joy. It's pursuing full joy by abiding in Christ day in and day out, every single moment. Jesus gives us joy that cannot be stolen from us. How do we, how do we live in this joy? How do we fight for this joy? And, and Jesus shows us that abiding prayer is a means for fullness of joy. Abiding prayer is a means for fullness of joy. Uh, I, know, I know a lot of you all have heard of that Tom Brady guy, Kevin talks about. He's a little better than Peyton Manning. Um, just a tad. He's got seven Super Bowls. He's considered the GOAT, the greatest quarterback of all time. He's achieved what no quarterback, no athlete probably will ever achieve. And when being interviewed about his success many years ago, he said, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than being the pinnacle of athletic success. And what that reminded me of is that earthly joy is fleeting. Earthly joy is fleeting, but joy in Christ is eternal. We read passages like th this verse 23 and 24, and our immediate thought is, that can't be right. You mean I can ask God for a million dollars, he's going to give it to me? You mean I can pray and God's going to give me whatever I want? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not offering us fleeting joy like Tom Brady's joy. He's not offering us just junk to ruin our souls and our lives. No, what Jesus is saying here in these last two verses is that when we pray in his name, according to his will, for his glory, we will get what we ask for. And ultimately, that will be fullness of joy. He says in verse 23, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Now, we ask Jesus for things in prayer, so I don't think he means we won't pray and ask Jesus for things. In fact, in, in a, previously in this conversation, he says, ask anything in my name and I will do it for you. But what he's saying is physically, face-to-face, -face, you're not going to ask me questions like, what do you mean? I'm going to go away in a little while and come back because I won't be here. I physically won't be here with you anymore. But truly, truly, I say to you, there it is again, without a doubt, no question, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. 
the theologian John Calvin says, we have the heart of God as soon as we place before him the name of his son. Isn't that glorious? There's a, there's a, a way for a kid to ask me for candy or for something, and there's a way for Naomi to ask me for something. There's, there's a way for little Josie to ask me for something, but there's Jojo who asked me for something. There's a difference because of the relationship. And, and that's what Jesus is saying. When you ask for something in my name, God's ears perk up because I'm his beloved son. We've been together for eternity. Our will is perfectly aligned. I represent you, and when I come to God, God gives me what I ask for because we love one another. We've been in fellowship, and what Jesus is saying is you go to the Father in my name, and I got you. I'll take care of you. He'll take care of you because of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. What makes praying in Jesus' name so effective? It's because God has called us to do it. It's his appointed way of giving us the power to do his will. You remember John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. God's appointed means of being able to bear spiritual fruit, to be able to do good, is by praying in the name of Jesus. It's not praying in the name of Chris or in the name of, of whatever the social justice thing is. It's praying in the name of Jesus, knowing that biblical justice will always reign true. It's praying in Jesus' name because his kingdom is the ultimate kingdom. Seek first his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Number two, the Son and the Father are, are united in their desire to fulfill our request. Both the Father and the Son together want to give us what we ask for when we ask in Jesus' name. It's not as if Jesus is interceding for us and saying, God, please give this to them. I know you don't want to grant their prayers, but please do it because I'm asking. No, it's Father. They're asking because the Spirit, my Spirit, your Word has put this in their hearts. Let's give this to them. Let's grant this to them. Praying in Jesus' name brings glory to God. John uh, 14, verse 13. It says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What Jesus is saying is, when you pray in my name, it brings glory to my Father. Through me, my Father is glorified when you pray in my name and I answer it. And then praying in Jesus' name ultimately means praying according to the word. There are promises in Scripture. There are things that God has promised to do for us if we will just ask. But we must ask. But before we get into the, the asking, I want to just wrestle with verse 24. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. What, what is it about prayer that makes us joyful? Um, if, if you were to ask the average person in this church, are you joyful? I imagine a lot of you would say, I struggle to be joyful. Maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. But over the years when I've asked people, do you have joy? A lot of times it's that they, people struggle to have joy. And then you ask the, the follow-up question, how's your prayer life? And all of us will probably say, I could pray more. My prayer life's a struggle. And, and the research shows that even pastors a lot of times are praying five or ten minutes a day. So if, if answered prayer and joy kind of flow together and we're joyless and prayerless, 
Perhaps what Jesus is showing us is that by praying more, we can find more joy. Answered prayer brings us fullness of joy. It helps us to bear fruit. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and he calls us to abide in prayer so that whatever we wish can be given to us. If we wish for fruit and we pray for fruit and we get fruit, we'll be joyful. So often I'm joyless because of my sin, because I haven't prayed to love Kim better, that I haven't prayed to love my children better, that I haven't prayed for God to give me more desire to be in his word. I haven't prayed for God to help me at my job, so then I struggle in my own strength. You know, there's so many reasons for me to be joyless, but a lot of it just comes down to I don't pray. I don't pray for help to live this life like I should. But prayer also, it keeps us attached to God. Abiding in God means being with him in his presence, talking to him, spending time with him. Again, marriage, parenting, friendships, if we don't spend time with people, we won't stay close to them. And when we're not close to the people we love, when we're not close to the most vital and precious relationships, we start to feel that lack of joy. Multiply that by infinity if we don't spend time with God. So remember that true joy, you know, it's a deep internal happiness or a cheerfulness that, that comes from God, from being with God, that's, that comes despite our circumstances. Even when we're suffering and grieving, we can find joy. God is worth it. He is really worth it, but we struggle. And I want to acknowledge the struggle. Part of, part of me wrestling through this text this week was, why do I struggle to pray when Jesus says, ask and receive, that your joy may be full? Why do I struggle? And number one is I just don't ask sometimes. Um, you know, I, maybe I have a wrong view of God. He's not going to grant this prayer because it's silly, because it's unimportant, because in the back of my mind, maybe I think God's looking to trip me up, you know. Um, I don't know about you all, but it could be that I have a wrong view of God. It could be that our desires are not aligned with his word. So, I mean, I, I know I don't need to pray for God to give me something silly, like, God, give me a new car. I got a nice working car. I don't need a new one. And there are so many things in life, like I just want the better iPhone, or I just want the, the iPad or the new computer. God, will you give me that? I, I know I shouldn't ask for that. I don't need it. And sometimes we ask, James says we ask amiss because we want to spend it on our, our pleasures, our, our desires. Um, but for some of us, like, we've prayed and it just didn't seem to work. It didn't take. Maybe we asked for the wrong thing, but sometimes we've asked for what we think is right. God. Rescue my cousin. He's dying of a heroin overdose. I'm on the way to the hospital and I find out he's dead. That's hard. That makes us not want to pray. It makes us think maybe God's not listening. Maybe we pray for something that we know God wants, but then we gave up. Uh, the story of George Mueller. He prayed for a couple of his friends, one of his friends over 50 years, and they didn't get saved until after he died. Sometimes we just give up because we don't persevere. But sometimes I think we're just too busy. Kim and I were, were talking about education and technology and all these things, and I, and I read a lot on technology because I'm a tech geek, but I also battle like just using my stuff too much, my phone, my computer. I'm really interested in it. 
And one of the, the things research is showing us about technology is it's supposed to free us up. It's supposed to give us more time to do the things we care about, but instead it frees us up to do other stuff because we don't have to do the stuff the technology does for us. So instead of spending two hours washing dishes, I can load the dishwasher a couple of times throughout the day and then go do something else that keeps me from praying, that keeps me from reading, that keeps me from spending time with people. And, you know, I don't have to iron my clothes. I can just throw them in the dryer and hit the wrinkle-free button. But instead of using that time wisely, I go scroll. You know, I just, it's, it's, sometimes we're just too busy. We don't make time for God, even though we believe these truths, and we want to believe these truths. We want to live in light of these truths. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus still wants you to pray. His fatherly love is still for you, despite all of these reasons. He's not here to beat us up. He's not here to shame you for not praying. He's saying, abide in me. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Do you want to be joyful? Ask and receive that your joy may be full. But I would be remiss if I didn't give some application here uh, because I think that this is an area for me to, to work on and maybe for some of you. I see some head nods and I hear a little bit of some noise out there, so maybe somebody is resonating with me. Um, what can we do? What can we do to have more joy? Jesus says the joy is untakeable. It's not gone. How do we get more joy? I think number one is just carve out some extra prayer time. And I'm, when I say carve out, I mean five or ten minutes a day to pray. Five or ten minutes. And that's not all you have to do, but I'm saying give yourself five or ten minutes to pray specifically. And in light of where we're going this summer, in light of the challenge, in light of our church's vision, I want to ask you to cut out five or ten minutes to pray specifically for Danville, Harrodsburg, Lancaster, Stanford, wherever you're living. Because we know for a fact that Jesus wants us to make disciples in our community, right? We know that's lined up with his will. So commit to five to ten minutes a day praying for our community. Maybe it's uh, a specific person. Maybe it's that person you bump into at the hub all the time or at dry stack. Maybe it's one of your coworkers. Maybe it's uh, one of your children that's an unbelieving child, an adult child. I, I don't know. Maybe it's a homeless person you've bumped into. Or maybe you don't know and you just want God to give you some direction. But pray specifically for someone to share Christ with, but not just to share the gospel, but to share your life with, to spend time, to be relational, to show them that you love them, to have an open door to a relationship. Pray specifically then I want you to pray boldly. I don't just want you to pray a generic, like, God, send somebody. God, please save so-and-so. I want you to pray, God, use me to reach this person. God, use Grace Church to reach this community of people within Danville. God, use my time at Dry Stack, at The Hub, at O'Charlie's, at Applebee's after church, at Cracker Barrel today. God, use the 4th of July get-together that I'll be at tonight to form a relationship that will lead someone to be a disciple of Christ. I don't think that's too bold or too specific. And perhaps when God answers it, when we ask and we receive, we will be full of joy. We will have stories to share with one another in Bible study, 
in small groups when we're just hanging out saying that I prayed on July 3rd and God answered a week later, a month later, a year later, five years later, 50 years later. We can pray boldly and specifically. And Jesus says, I'm going to read it again because it's his words. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Ask and receive that your joy may be full. Set aside time. You pray specifically. You pray boldly. Believe that he will do it. In other places, Jesus says, pray, believing that you have received it and it will be done for you. James says, if we pray and we don't expect to get it, why do we even pray at all? Grace Church, let's be people who pray and believe that God will answer because it's according to his will. And then when we see the answer to prayer, when we see what God has done in our community amongst the people in our lives, let's rejoice and celebrate together. And this morning as we celebrate the risen Christ, be reminded Jesus prepared us. He prepared his disciples. He prepared us for this. And as we celebrate his death and his ascension, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, he will be back soon. He will be back soon. He left for a little bit. He came back from the dead. He ascended for a little bit. He will be back for his bride in times of ease, in times of suffering, in times of grief, in times of joy. None of it will be taken from us because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray for my own soul. I pray for the, the souls here this morning that we would have untakeable joy. I pray that we would rest in the fatherly love of Jesus for us, that we would remember that you, your son, your spirit, are not trying to trip us up or let us fall down or beat us up when we fail. Rather, God, you're for us. And if you are for us, who can be against us? There is no force in the universe that can stop your kingdom, that can stop your power, and we see it because Jesus died and rose again. He was gone for a little while. And in a little while, he came back. And in a little while, he will be back to get us. Father, thank you that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. Thank you for the reminder. Thank you for loving us, God. Thank you for showing us in your word through the, the life of Christ, through the teaching of the disciples, through church history, through the celebration of the Lord's Supper, that you love us and you'll be back for us. God, if you're for us, who can be against us? I pray that we would go boldly in your power to reach Danville, Harrodsburg, Lancaster, Stanford, wherever we go, because it's in your power and apart from you, we can do nothing. It's in Christ's name that I pray.